Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with procrastination expert Tim Pitchell about what procrastination really is, why we do it, and how best to tackle it. Tim's a psychology professor and founder of the Procrastination Research Group at Carleton University in Ottawa, who's worked with many lawyers and judges. He's also a prolific author, the recipient of numerous teaching awards, and a sought-after speaker. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Tim. Well, thanks very much, Shelley. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's really my pleasure. I've been looking forward to the interview. I'd like to start off um, talking about, in a general sense, the type of work that you have done with lawyers and judges. I find that so intriguing. Well, yeah, I'd be happy to. I, you know, I'm a reluctant consultant um, <laughs> in lots of ways, and it's been true when I worked with uh, book publishing companies around teaching and learning, and then later when I started getting calls about my work in procrastination because I became a productivity expert. And I thought, how does a guy that studies procrastination become a productivity <laughs> expert? But I actually learned from one of the judges that I worked with. She turned me on to Brene Brown's work. And mm-hmm. I was reading one of, I think it's the, gifts, the Gift of Vulnerability. And Brene Brown writes, we have to talk about what gets in the way of doing what is best for us. And that quote for her, that concept for her, helped her understand how she, as a shame researcher, could become someone who's an expert on wholehearted living. And mm-hmm. the light went on for me. Exactly. We have to talk about what gets in the way of doing what is best for us. And that's why uh, my work in procrastination is so important to all of us and, and including the highest functioning in our society, people who have been selected over and over again for their achievements, such as lawyers and judges and who I've worked with. And so when I first got contacted by a group of uh, law firm in the Ottawa region to go on one of their treats and do a, a whole morning session with them, I thought, what in the world? do I have to offer these people? Like they just rock, right? Like, they're, like look <laughs> at their lives. Uh, they make more money than I do. They handle really complicated cases in our world. They're so responsible. I, I almost felt like an imposter, but it became really obvious to me ra- rather quickly. And that's true with the judges as well, that uh, they struggled at times with what gets in the way. And what we've found, what gets in the way, is the story that I tell about procrastination. And, and what I love about working with lawyers and judges is that they're such gifted listeners, right? I can speak as quickly as I want. And, and they have such insightful questions. They're really quite intimidating as a, a, a group of people to work with because uh, they push so hard. But they get it, right? Uh, I watch the lights go on when we move from, and this is a, a little bit of a foreshadow where I think our interview has to go, that procrastination isn't a time management issue. It's an emotion management issue. And then when I unpack the the psychological story behind how that works, then I think they get a whole new license in understanding what gets in the way. So that's uh, kind of where that came from. Now, I've also worked with psychologists in the area who've asked me to come in and talk about procrastination as a phenomenon because it happens in their clients. I've had uh, academics, certainly, who've contacted me and say, Tim, 
why can't I get to this manuscript? And so it's really interesting, you know, at first we think it's a problem of all-nighters with students and that sort of thing, which it is, but mm-hmm. it's, it goes well beyond that. I have business people from, from around the world because I've been doing this for so long who write to me and say, I, I can't make those cold calls for my sales or I'm going to lose my job. And it's really fascinating to see how, again, what gets in the way for us is ourselves and, and mm-hmm. to underst- get behind that, to understand what it is that's going on inside of us. Those in- internal processes uh, really can give us uh, new uh, strategies for resilience. And, and that's what I'm on about. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying then, it's not a question of being poor managers of our time or being lazy um, just not wanting to do something that keeps us from doing the things that we know that we should be doing. In well, fact, it's, it's part of the human condition. There's a whole bunch of things that set us up to be, as the behavioral economists are, uh, so, uh, so often say, we are predictably irrational. Hmm. And I get behind, well, what does it mean to be predictable irrational? How, how is it the human is constructed that way? And in fact, I love to quote uh, Richard Taylor from the University of Chicago, who won the Nobel Prize in 2017 in economics. And as he has said so, so beautifully, we're more like Homer Simpson than we are homo economicus. And that's interesting <laughs> for lawyers and judges, because one of the things about law is it's so rational, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's so precise and rational. And yet the, uh, the human mind uh, has the rational part, of course, we might call it the prefrontal cortex, that last part of the brain that was added on evolutionarily speaking, that is executive function, that's planful and organized and dutiful and can, and, uh, can uh, keep us from being impulsive, uh, inhibit those impulsive things. But then we're also, uh, we have that fast brain, this thing, the reptilian brain, we call it the limbic system the amygdala mm-hmm. in particular, and that's very quick and, and we are very emotional. And so that all that story comes into it to understand that, yeah, it's not that we're lazy. It's that the human brain is set up in such a way that we will give in to feel good because it feels good to feel good now. So what you're saying is to procrastinate makes us feel good? Yeah. Procrastination makes us feel good in the short term. And that's why my colleagues and I call this short-term mood repair. It's not a time management problem. It's an emotion management problem. The task we're facing causes us negative emotions, maybe anxiety, frustration, resentment, boredom. You pick it. You'll find them. You know your uh, negative emotions that are associated with some of your work tasks, with maybe some of the cases that you have. And you know, we all know this, that we can avoid those negative emotions by avoiding the task, at least in the short term. So if you think back to a time where you last procrastinated, say, how did you feel when you put that off? Most people, when I give a talk to an audience, will say relief, and others will admit, I feel pretty good, right? Because Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do that. Now, there's another piece to this, which is so fascinating. The work of Dan Gilbert at Harvard has taught us that when we try to predict how the future self is going to feel, we rely on our present feelings. Now, for example of this is that I'd like you to think about the last time you went grocery shopping when you were hungry versus when you, were, uh, you just finished eating a meal at the restaurant next door. I can tell you that your carts look distinctly, distinctively different. Mm-hmm. When you're hungry, you're probably pulling a second cart along with you. It's just full of potato chips, right? You're looking <laughs> at the snack foods. Now, what that is is it's called presentism. 
As Dan Gilbert explains, we use the present to predict the future. And if we're hungry now, we think we're going to be hungry in the future. And you can see how predictably irrational that is. Mm -hmm. Now, how does that relate to procrastination? Well, that moment when you decide to procrastinate, oh, I just, I can't work on that case today. Your whole body's screaming, run away. And you do. How do you feel? Well, at that moment, you're feeling pretty good because you got that nasty thing off your desk, at least for now. And so when you think about, are you going to feel more like it tomorrow? You think, yes, just like you think I'm going to be hungry tomorrow, or I don't need food when you're full. And we're so predictably irrational that Gilbert's research has shown that even drug addicts, after they've ingested a drug of choice, will say, no, I don't need it so much. Talk about mm. irrational, right? Wow. So we are set up for this in that sense, that we've got present self who wins, future self not so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so fascinating. And there's just so, so many paradoxes there. Uh, mm. I, I'm wondering if there are any sort of personality traits that tend to be more associated with procrastination or set us up um, to be procrastinators. Yes, absolutely. Conscientiousness is very highly correlated with procrastination, but negatively. In other words, if you're really high in conscientiousness, you're very low in procrastination. So we want to understand what conscientiousness is. Right. Then. So conscientiousness means that you're organized, you're self-disciplined, you're dutiful, uh, you're able to resist impulses. Huh. Sounds like executive function, which probably it is physiologically in so many ways. But people that are high in conscientiousness then are very planful and they feel that self-discipline and they seem to exert their willpower. What does your office space look like? Is it neat, tidy, organized? Everything's always done on time? Well, then you're high in conscientiousness. If it's mm -hmm. uh, disorganized and you have problems with structure, then you're low in conscientiousness and you're, you're at risk for procrastination. So that's the number one trait. The next trait that's very highly correlated with procrastination is impulsivity. And here it does sound a lot like uh, a part of executive function, again, being able to inhibit uh, impulses. But if you're impulsive, uh, you're going to give in to those momentary, I don't want to, I don't feel like it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for me just to stop there and say that that's the procrastinator's song, right? Um, <laughs> one thing you and I haven't chatted about really yet, and we, should, we need to, we should divert to this for a second, is that, so how do we define procrastination? Mm -hmm. so, so procrastination is the voluntary delay of an intended action despite expecting to be worse off for the delay. You, so you have some idea that you used your practical reason to say, it's in my best interest to work on a certain task at a certain time. That's my intention. And then the time comes and, you're, and you say, I don't want to, I don't feel like it. And, but you recognize that this delay is going to cost me. And I'm really, uh, and I, actually I can tell you that a colleague of mine at Utrecht University, uh, a philosopher, he makes that even more succinct. And he says, procrastination is culpably unwarranted delay. And I love that one for lawyers and judges because mm -hmm. you're culpable, mm -hmm. right? And, and I'm, I've gotten that, that diversion because you have to recognize different flavors of delay in your life. This is crucial, right? Procrastination is only one flavor of delay. We can, right now during COVID, there's lots of delay going on in people's lives. And I say, quit beating yourself up with this procrastination thing. It's delay due to emotional problems. Like you're really mm -hmm. struggling and things aren't going to happen. And, and better examples of that, because COVID is so widespread, is uh, imagine that you've lost uh, a parent or a friend, or you've uh, lost a job, or something ha has happened in your life that causes you uh, major emotional stress. Well, other things aren't going to get done, but you won't be guilty of procrastination necessarily. 
And then there's even purposeful mm-hmm. delay. Like delay is part of our lives. I can say, I'm going to work on this case and I'm going to put off that case because I need more information about that one. People might even call that a sagacious delay, a wise delay. You're just mm-hmm. thinking, I need the delay. So mm-hmm. the key thing here is that some delay, delay is always part of our lives. Uh, think about the times we go on a, we relate to a meeting uh, when we're traveling across the country because planes are delayed. No one calls you a procrastinator. That's an inevitable delay. So I think it's right. really important to really start to have an idea of that there's many forms of delay in our lives, but procrastination is particularly problematic because it is that culpably unwarranted delay for which we're guilty because we know we're going to be worse off. And that's the one we can have the most uh, impact on. We can make changes in our lives to address. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, we do it anyway, even though we know the consequences are going to be negative. Yeah, because yeah. that's the long term. That's future self. You remember I said right. that um, Richard Taylor says we're more like Homer Simpson than we are Homo economicus. Well, I mm-hmm. always show a picture of Homer Simpson in my talks. And that's why I like Taylor so much, because he gave me license to do this with lawyers and judges. <laughs> Just think how this professor felt standing up in front of these austere groups and presenting a cartoon of Homer Simpson, right? I feel like an <laughs> idiot. But then here is this uh, a, a Nobel Prize winning uh, economist saying we are more like this guy. So this comic depicts Marge Simpson saying, you know, homie, one day these kids are going to be grown and gone and you're going to regret not spending more time with them. And Homer in his infinite wisdom says, yeah, that's a problem for future Homer. Man, I don't envy that guy. <laughs> so, right? And we all laugh because Homer always captures it so well. And that's why Richard Taylor picked up. We're more like Homer mm-hmm. Simpson. And so that's what's happening. As much as we say, uh, I'm, I don't want to, I don't feel like it, uh, and I'm going to delay it, and I know I'm going to be worse off, oh, that's future Homer. <laughs> oh, man, mm-hmm. I don't want to be that guy, right? And, and that's where my research has come in to understand, so how do we get past that? And in fact, we've done some studies to show that if you can do some time travel, in other words, think about future self more, and in our research, we did that by having students do a guided meditation thinking about future self, they develop more empathy for future self. Homer has a bit because he said, man, I don't envy that guy. <laughs> the more empathy that we saw people develop for future self, that was related to less procrastination. So just kind of an, uh, bringing together present self and future self helps future self make better, I mean, present self make better choices. That's so interesting. And on that point, I'm thinking about productivity strategies and things that people that's sort of the natural go natural go to when we know that we need to do something and we just can't get going um we look to things like to-do lists and and putting things in our agenda and all of these productivity uh tools Mm -hmm. so i think what i'm hearing you saying is that those aren't going to be super helpful i'm going to say something a bit more nuanced uh (laughs) necessary but not sufficient Like it's really important that everyone develop good time management skills, but don't for a minute think that's going to solve the procrastination puzzle, right? Mm -hmm. Because we get to that point where we say, okay, I promised myself Monday morning, I'm going to work on this case. I'll keep on that because of uh, your audience. And Monday morning comes. And as I've said before, the procrastinator's song is, I don't feel like it. I don't want to. And usually the chorus is, and I'll feel more like it tomorrow. (laughs) That's, that's where now we've, we don't have a time management problem because we we're managing our time. We've said, this is when I should work on this. Now we have to manage our emotions. Cause I just said, I don't want to, I don't feel like it. 
Mm-hmm. So the st- strategies that have to happen then, I can give, bring it back actually to David Allen, one of the productivity gurus of the whole world. You know, I think most people will know his book, Getting Things Done. He's just re-released it. It is a mm-hmm. fa- very powerful book for learning or hyper-organizational skills. In fact, not everyone likes David Allen because you really have to buy into his whole framework. But one of the things that David Allen says is very powerful is that we don't do projects, we do actions. So I'm gonna tell you what I, from what my research has shown and from what David Allen has said, I bring those two things together to a life-changing strategy. And I truly mean that. It sounds so dramatic. It sounds like I'm making a pitch on a late night YouTube video, right? Like how you're gonna lose 100 pounds next week. But it's life-changing in the sense that because it's about our emotions, we know from research on emotions, you can't suppress them or deny them. Those aren't very good techniques. And real change takes a long time around emotions. So what can I do in the short term to actually get back on task? Because that's what you said, just to get going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so then what we need to do is simply ask ourselves a simple question. This is the whole simple question. What's the next action I need to take? And that kind of feeds into David Allen's work, of course, but I also found it in our early research that getting started was everything. And in fact, mm. the book that you have in your, on your desk today from me, that Solving the Procrastination Puzzle, I have a chapter that's entitled, uh, Just Get Started. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to tell you that since publishing that book, I've had people get uh, come back to me and say, Tim, you've been studying this for over 20 years and you tell me just get started is that the best you can do? Because if I could just get started, I wouldn't have a procrastination problem. And I thought, <laughs> that's fair. Okay, good enough. And so really the, the, the way I've framed it now, drawing on the productivity literature, which is what you spoke about, and this research on the magic of getting started, how it changes our perception of tasks, is that if I ask myself, what's the next action? I move my attention away from my emotions, which I'm having troubles with, And I I have to boil it down to the simple next action. In fact, Mark Twain was famous for saying, at least he's quoted as saying this, you know how these statements get quoted to people and you wonder Mm -hmm. if they ever said it. But in any case, Mark Twain has been said to have said, if your job is to eat a frog, it's best to do it first thing in the morning. And if your job Mm -hmm. is to eat two frogs, it's best to eat the biggest one first. When (laughs) I was working with the judges, uh, geez, well, four or five years ago now in Vancouver, I bought a frog for every single person in that, in that room. And there were a lot of people there and they all looked at these little colorful frogs. And again, I felt so vulnerable because I thought, yeah, they think I'm a little bit whacked, but I've had people write to me later and said that that frog sits on my desk or that frog sits on my bench. And I ask myself every morning, what's my frog today? Hmm. And, and there's the essential thing. And, and that feeds into this. What I'm really focused on is what's the next action because you're trying to make that action as small as possible. Like I need to get that case folder out of the drawer or I need to open those couple of emails and just reread them. Well, I can open a couple of emails and just reread them without thinking about writing my whole judgment or um, writing this letter to my client, right? Because that's the part that I'm really um, having emotional reactions to, the size of the tasks typically. But I can make that next action. And getting started is magical because once we get started, other research has shown that even a little bit of progress on our goal feeds our well-being. So I, I can't emphasize more how important it is to get the seat of your pants, keep the seat of your pants on the seat of your chair by just looking at that next action 
And don't think further than that. Because you also mm. said, well, what about to-do lists? Well, yes. we just finished a study on to-do lists. Shamaruk Choudhury, one of my PhD students, and she's just writing it up now. And she <laughs> can tell you that, yes, people who report using to-do lists are, are more productive. Uh, particularly, it happens in the, the group of people she was studying that using written to-do lists in a structured way seem to be better than haphazard ones or even electronic ones. I think that's a bit of a moving target. I think there's a lot of fantastic electronic tools. Mm -hmm. That said, I want you to think about how some people use to-do lists. They say, oh, okay, I've got this big task to do. So they sit down and they write out all the things they need to do for that. And they go, okay, that's enough for today. (laughs) (laughs) I've made my to-do list. I have my plan. Mm -hmm. But so we can use those things in the oddest ways. To-do lists, again, are necessary but not sufficient. We have to move from the planning to the acting. Because what Mm -hmm. happens with a to-do list in that case is we're using it as an emotion uh, coping device. We're trying to feel a sense of control. And you can feel that in your body. If after you finish your to-do list, now you feel like there's no sense of urgency, then what you've been doing is coping, not planning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so fascinating because I, I think I'm a big to-do list. Um, I'm not sure I would say I just do a to-do, to-do list and then I'm done for the day, but I just live by that to-do list and it feels so good mm-hmm. to put things down, but it feels even better to cross them off. Yes, uh, and sometimes I think we should write down things we've done today and cross them off because it, yeah. it's a celebration because we did do those things, right? It's, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, This is the interesting thing in these discussions, I think, that everyone has to recognize. Uh, A paradox, the fact that the opposite of one great truth is often another great truth. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, as much as it might feel like it's conflicting, no, it's that we have to have the wisdom to know the difference. It's a little bit like knowing when is it procrastination and when is it sagacious delay? And Mm -hmm. I can do that dance in myself and try to excuse myself. But typically, when I know I'm fooling myself is when I start to feel some elements of guilt, right? But there's, I'm not dissing to-do lists. I'm just saying that you got to watch how you use them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really important to have very strong time management skills, but you're drawing a distinction there between um, time management and emotion, right? Emotion regulation, I think is, uh, yeah. And it's so fascinating. So like getting started um, Mm -hmm. is a strategy that, um, you have advocated for strongly other things, um, various things I've heard self-compassion and self-forgiveness. It keeps yes. hearing that. <laughs> it's funny you go there. Michael Wall at Carleton university is a prestigious and prolific researcher. And, uh, a de- over a decade ago now, he came to me and said, you know, we should do a study on, uh, forgiveness and procrastination. I said, well, we could, Michael, but I think it'll be forgive and forget, right? <laughs> he said, oh, don't be so sure. And I thought, well, what do you know about that? He does all sorts of interesting work cross-culturally. He does a lot of work on gambling. But we had a, a common graduate student, and, and as professors often do, we got her to run the study. And then we found something that startled me. We, we used, as we do in the university setting, and so you always have to keep that in mind, uh, that we had students that procrastinated on preparation for an exam and, and did poorly. And in that group, some forgave themselves for that procrastination and some didn't. And lo and behold, the ones that didn't forgive themselves procrastinated more on preparation for the next exam 
And the ones who forgave themselves didn't procrastinate as much. And I said, wow. Michael, it's not forgive and forget. How did that happen? What, what's going on there? You got to teach me now. <laughs> he said, well, imagine if you and Shelly had a transgression against each other, like you didn't show up for the interview. <laughs> what, would be, what would be the motivation? He, I said, well, it would be uh, avoid. I want to avoid Shelly. She might even want to avoid me. He said, absolutely. And so what happens though if Shelly forgives you? You know, it's COVID time or, you know, you've just gotten over cancer, all this stuff, you know. And, and uh, I said, well, then the motivation would be approach. I'd be willing to contact her. He said, exactly. Now he said, with uh, procrastination, the transgression is against the self. And unless you forgive yourself, you're just layering in one more, la la uh, one more uh, bit of avoidance. And so we, we need this self-compassion we need this self-forgiveness so that we can move ahead. I've heard so much about self-compassion being um, so powerful in helping us deal with a lot of uh, very strong situations that are so highly emotional uh, yes. and self-forgiveness, self-compassion. And you talk about Brene Brown and her work. And of course, that is, uh, that's so essential to the work that she does as well. Well, yes. And there's two things I want to say about that, if I could. Uh, Fuchsia Sirwa over at the University of Sheffield has broadened our focus on self-forgiveness to self-compassion. And she's shown in a number of studies that the higher your self-compassion, the lower your procrastination. And mm -hmm. what's interesting there is that self-compassion comes from an understanding of common humanity. And if there's something I hope that listeners got from the interview so far is that uh, this is human nature. It's not some uh, flaw that only a few of us have. It's human nature to procrastinate. It's human nature to be more like Homer Simpson than Homo economicus, as you've heard. So self-compassion mm -hmm. is really part of our common humanity. And you can't have self-compassion unless you accept that it, you do have this common humanity with others and you're not different than any other lawyer or judge. The other part of this that I want to address is that, and we didn't, you know, uh, you asked me about personality, I said conscientiousness and impulsiveness, but I missed a really important one, particularly for this group. But it came to me when you were speaking about self-compassion and particularly Brene Brown. But it's about perfectionism. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. if there's something that's uh, really problematic uh, in any of our professional groups, but particularly I've found with lawyers and judges, uh, is uh, per perfectionism. Uh, and there's more than one flavor of perfectionism, as I talked about other flavors of delay. And that is there's self oriented perfectionism, which just means I want to do a really good job because this, that's how I do things. And in fact, we don't find that correlated with procrastination. It might not be the healthiest of things because you can drive yourself pretty hard, but it's not, your problem's not going to be procrastination. But then there's another part of this called socially prescribed perfectionism. And that's where you're trying to live up to typically unrealistic standards of others. And that's, that's why we call it socially prescribed. And it comes early in life. My father uh, really loved me and cared for me and gave me good things, but was he ever a perfectionist? And mm. he lives with me in my, in my psyche. It's like he sits on my shoulder and says, you know, that's <laughs> not quite good enough. And, and that can freeze us in our tracks. We cannot feel we can live up to those standards. And socially prescribed perfectionism is a problem. And when you were talking about self-compassion, there's a place we really have to bring self-compassion to bear on our common humanity of many of us are perfectionists. And we can think of the words of Leonard Cohen, for example, everything has a crack in it. That's how the light gets in. Forget your perfect offering, mm. right? And that's beautiful. so, it is beautiful. And you know what? Every time I've worked 
with uh, judges in particular, they come to me with new resources on this because it's obvious to me that many of them have worked through this uh, and they've given me other resources and books on perfectionism as a spiritual journey and things like that. So this is worth mentioning to your listeners because uh, it's, it's important that we strive to do our best and clients depend on it. Not only do you bill by the fraction of the hour, but the outcomes are high stakes for everybody, right? No matter what kind of law that you practice. So you, you want to do your best job well as possible, as perfect as possible is important. But if you're Mm -hmm. having this internal dialogue that also reflects the fact that you're trying to live up to the unrealistic standards of others, as opposed to just doing the best you can, that's when you run into problems. And again, there's some wisdom in telling the difference, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's no way around that, unfortunately, right? That you, you do have to do that hard work of saying, okay, I want to do a really good job here, but at what point is it becoming really dysfunctional? And mm-hmm. some people call it per- perfectionistic strivings versus perfectionistic concerns. And perfectionistic strivings aren't correlated with procrastination, but perfectionistic concerns that are often caught up with that internal dialogue that's come from the past or come from other people, that's a problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's um, obviously something that most lawyers are played with at some point uh, in their profession, if not every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and so many psychological um, problems that are associated with that. Um, yeah, and I just, I'm thinking about uh, some of the other things. I'm thinking about your, your book, The Pro- Procrastination Puzzle, and another strategy that we haven't uh, talked about is the idea of, um, I can't remember what you called, implementation intentions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The work of Peter Galwitzer and his students. Yeah, and I spend a lot of time in that book speaking of that. I, I probably spend more time now uh, speaking to what's the next action because okay. it's something that's operational every moment of our lives. And on my bad, my worst days, I have to say that over, to, over and over to myself. Right? <laughs> it, some days it primes the pump the first time. Other times it's okay, okay, what's the next action now? Okay, what's mm-hmm. the next action now? Now the good thing is at the end of the day, I got stuff done, but it's, right. it doesn't make it easy. Now an implementation intention is another important strategy, but I, I do rate, rate it a little lower now than my what's the next action approach. Now the implementation, um, intention differs from a goal intention. So your goal intention might be to write a letter to your client or uh, finish a judgment. That's your goal. But the implementation intention has a certain form Peter Galwitzer has shown that's most effective. In situation X, I'll do behavior Y. So when we finish this interview today, then I'm going to go do such and such. Okay. And why that's important is that it puts the cue for action into the environment because we're creatures of habit. We work on what we're feeling internally. And what's happening then is that we just fall back to old prepotent responses and we're much like Homer Simpson. But when we say in situation X, I'm going to do behavior Y, we go, oh yeah, when I finish my coffee, then I said, I'm going to go and do this. And, and that can help us develop new habits and certainly fight old habits. And I've seen in my work with students as an example, when they set implementation intentions, when I finish my class, then I'm going to the library to work on that assignment. Now I have to add, as soon as someone says work on that assignment, I say, you know, that's too vague to mean much. Mm-hmm. And then we add um, another key strategy was, which is make it concrete. 
we've yeah. known from a series of studies that when we think about things concretely, there's a sense of urgency to them. They seem to belong to today. And these studies that were done were fascinating because they even showed how concrete art feels more belonging to today than abstract art. And, hmm. and when we think of things abstractly, they seem to be, belong more to tomorrow. And so for a common example for a professor, if I say to my student, so what have you been doing? Working on my thesis. I know they're doing nothing at all. It's just too <laughs> abstract. If they say to me something like, well, I've been struggling with that section we discussed last time about how I'm going to move from this section of my results. And I think, okay, you're doing something. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, again, for whatever profession you're in, you want to boil it down to, in situation X, I'm going to do behavior Y and keep it. Uh, an actionable behavior, like really something that you can nest these strategies, make it something, what's the next action? Now, mm-hmm. what you've added to that is in this situation, I'm going to do this behavior. I'm going to keep it at a low threshold so that I'm not focused on how I'm feeling about it because my whole body's screaming, I don't want it, I don't feel like mm-hmm. it. And instead, I now have used a signal in the environment for me to do something. Now, this gets mm-hmm. embodied into other psychological theory, something called event segmentation theory. Now, that sounds kind of Ooh, crazily, yeah. <laughs> uh, crazy, but let me just, it's a really simple thing. Imagine in your day, we all have routines. Uh, a, t- a typical routine might be my toothbrushing routine or my showering routine. And in fact, when Peter Galwitzer did his work, he found, for example, with women who were told to do self-breast exams, uh, when the doctor told them to do, only 50% did it. But when they made an implementation intention, it went to 100%. But with event segmentation theory, I also recognize that you have to embed those new tasks into something that already has some sense to it. Like, I don't say I'm going to floss my teeth just after I towel off from the shower. They just don't jive mm-hmm. together mentally. We don't recall them. But if I say to myself, when I put down my toothbrush, I'm going to pick up my floss then it has a bit more integrity. So I build on one habit, because I always brush my teeth, to another habit. Now, we can move away from health behaviors and say, what in your own professional life would have that same sense of, I always seem to do these things together. What can I insert in there to get other stuff done that's my frog? Right. Oh, that makes such good sense. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on something you mentioned before about urgency and uh, how concrete things tend to be more present and there's a sense of urgency as opposed to abstract. What would you say to someone who says exactly that? I have to put things off because then I have very little time to do it and that's the only time I'll I'll ever be able to get anything done. So Hmm. I'm like, they're sort of purposeful putting things off because they feel that it just generates in them the motivation to, to get it done. Well, that's, that's a great question. I've had some colleagues in the last few years that have defined uh, active procrastination. Then quickly, I define that as an oxymoron. Right? <laughs> I don't like to modify the word procrastination because I think it goes back to saying there's different kinds of delay and procrastination is just one of them. And you even said it. If you went back and listened to what you said, purposeful. And that's what we demonstrated in published research, that active procrastination is really a form of purposeful delay. So, for example, even with students, if a student says, okay, I have this assignment due Friday, and they look at it and go, it's pretty easy, and it's not that important, I'm going to do it Thursday night. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say they're procrastinating. I might not, sometimes I might say they're not very prudent, because getting it done earlier uh, might save them if something else comes up. But they're not procrastinating, because they use their practical reason to say, this is when I'm going to do it. But you added one more piece in there, which is really fascinating, which is I, I need the pressure. And 
And some people have talked about arousal procrastinators. And again, I don't like adding adjectives to the word procrastination. But arousal procrastinators are people who argue they like to work better under pressure. And we've published research on that. In fact, very few people work better under pressure. But we like to believe we are the ones that do that. It's like <laughs> the literature on multitasking. More people get into accidents and make mistakes with the multitasking. The few that can do it, we think, well, that's me. No, it's not mm. typically, right? So mm -hmm. I, I, it's a big caveat to say that although there can be some people who seem to work better under pressure, what, what defines them, and this is what we found in our research, and so did a couple of German colleagues, is that they're very low in neuroticism. In other words, when the pressure comes, they don't fall apart. But most of us, when we get under pressure, we start making more mistakes. We start coming apart at the seams. What we have to recognize is that we don't work better under pressure. We're only working under pressure. And then we have to start looking more very carefully at what's the problem here? What, what, why is it that I'm not able to get started earlier? And it's because we're not able to do our emotion regulation. So let me add one more piece to this then, because I've told you that my biggest strategy, because it's most effective in short term, is what's the next action? But if I'm looking at changing my habits long term, I would say mindfulness meditation is hugely important. And in fact, in workshops with uh, judges and other professionals, I've seen a lot of people bring mindfulness meditation into that work because you learn how to be able to gently bring your attention back to where you want it. Mm -hmm. If you've ever tried to sit and do mindfulness meditation, you realize none of us are very good at this. I'm, I'm thinking mm -hmm. about why am I sitting here? Oh boy, my legs hurt. I wonder if everybody else in the room thinks this. I feel so <laughs> stupid. I, you know, what are we having for dinner tonight? And you realize your head's everywhere. But mm -hmm. with mindfulness meditation, all you're supposed to do is recognize you're having that thought and bring your attention back to your breath. That's the typical form. Mm -hmm. Well, that builds a huge, what we as psychologists call, volitional skill. Because I learn how to gently and non-judgmentally move my attention from one place to another. So I can say to myself, yeah, I, I really, I, I'm terrified about this judgment because I think it's just going to be appealed. And I, I'm worried that I don't even have the law right and you can take your attention gently from all of those monkey mind thoughts back to where you need it to be. Mm -hmm. So in the long run, I would argue that not only do you need short-term strategies like what's the next action, but I think everyone would be well, well advised to develop this volitional skill. Mm -hmm. And one more piece to this. Some German colleagues in the last few years have shown that the amygdala of chronic procrastinators is actually larger than those who do not report as much procrastination. So this amygdala is part of our limbic system. It's known as the center of fight and flight. And it's wired to the prefrontal cortex. The brain is wired to everything, right? And what uh, fires together, wires together. And so you've got this amygdala that works with the hippocampus in learning and adds emotional information. But with procrastinators, what we, what we simplify it as is we have an amygdala hijack. I don't want to, I don't feel like it, run away. So we run mm -hmm. away, that's procrastination. But uh, research out of the University of Pittsburgh by a woman named uh, Turen has shown that even eight weeks of mindfulness meditation can shrink the size of, of the amygdala, shrink the volume of the amygdala and change the connections to the prefrontal cortex. It's neuroplasticity. And so mm -hmm. not only do we develop what I call volitional skills, the neuroscientists would say, yeah, you're changing your brain too. And you're mm -hmm. making yourself less vulnerable to the amygdala hijack. So uh, sometimes it's a hard sell to say to people, you know, because mindfulness meditation has been sold to be everything. Of course, it's not everything, but I tell you that it makes a difference in developing some emotion control.
Mm-hmm. And you're saying just eight weeks. So, I mean, that's not much of a commitment. If you are a skeptic, at least just, you know, try it for a short period of time and see. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, and then don't, and don't expect raised... it to be life-changing. Like, it's not that you're going to get transcendental meditation where you're going to get into some altered state of consciousness. Right. It's simply that you're learning how to, this is key again, I'm going to repeat it, non-judgmental awareness of your emotions. Like, mm-hmm. I am so freaking out here. Like, not everyone can even acknowledge the fact that what I'm worried about is an appeal or what I'm worried about is, do I have the law correct? Right. right. And unless you're willing to put some of that on the table, then you're, you're so busy running away uh, that you, you just see it as procrastination. But at its heart is that there's some real issues in there of either feeling like an imposter or, <laughs> and, and we do as human beings, right? We're put into such important um, uh, roles of authority that anyone would feel like, holy mackerel, what am I doing here? <laughs> Don't they know who I am? And, and then you can mm-hmm. want to put, put things off. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You have raised so many fascinating issues and uh, so many avenues that I, I definitely would love to pursue in terms of learning more. So where can listeners learn more about the research and the work that you're doing? Well, we established a website back in 1995. We bought the domain name procrastination.ca. You'll find my books there, my podcasts there, a blog I've written for Psychology Today. I've been away from both of those for quite a while because of this cancer that I've struggled with for the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, probably going to return to it, but the, the resources there are rich. So if you want to know more about perfectionism, for example, I've got two interviews with Gord Flett from the University, York University, who's a world expert on perfectionism, as well as an interview with Fuchsia Sirfoff from the University of Sheffield on her recent meta-analysis on perfectionism, and on and on. Sure. Whatever topic I've mentioned, there's interviews there, and there's also blog posts about it if you want to dig a bit deeper. And it's all there for free. Fantastic. So procrastination.ca, I'll create a link uh, to the website in the show notes. Um, yeah, so wow, Tim, that was just so wonderful. I'm just so honored that you spent all this time speaking with us and sharing your expertise on procrastination. Uh, I have a clear idea of what it is, why we do it, and some really practical strategies on how to tackle it. Uh, so yeah, thank you, thank you. And are there any sort of final um, things that you'd like to say before we sign off? Well, there's two other things, you know, it's, I could go on and on and on. I'm a professor, (laughs) but it's worth mentioning because I think that, as I said before, I find uh, people in the legal profession are great listeners and they can consume a great deal. So I'm just going to add two more things to the table. Uh, The recent research on self-control has shown that self-control doesn't save most of us and willpower is not the way to approach these things. One of the best strategies is to reduce temptations. Now, this is Mm -hmm. obvious for children. I say, get rid of that. TikTok and Instagram right now, mm-hmm. uh, but we all need to do that. Like we, we all have these habits. So find out what your temptations are. And that leads me to the next one. And, and I know we've gone on a long time, but it's worth mentioning. I, I mentioned uh, Joel Anderson from Utrecht before when I talked about culpably unwarranted delay, but he's also written about something called extended will. If I said to you, Shelly, what's three times three, you would say nine. And if I said, what's 287 by 566, you say, I can't do that in my head. (laughs) Of course, if you could, I'd be pretty impressed. Uh, (laughs) But if I gave you a piece of paper and a pencil, you could do that. That's called extended cognition. And we recognize very early that we shouldn't try to do everything just in our head. 
But somehow, and this is what Joel uh, Anderson and Joe Heath from the University of Toronto have argued, so why do we do that with willpower? Why don't we extend our will the same way? And so I'd welcome people to also think about uh, how can you do that? So a, a mundane example is that many of us want to exercise more, but the time will come to go to the gym and go, I don't, well, now we don't go to the gym at all, but, <laughs> but I, don't, I don't want to, I don't feel like it. But if you and I had set up a date to meet at the gym, I'd never let you down. You know, you know that about yourself. We can leverage mm -hmm. those parts of our self-control. And so I'd show up at the gym and lo and behold, I'd get my exercise in. So we have to find a way to set up the environment so that it works for us, not against us. And that's why mm -hmm. the temptations led into the extended will. And, and lots of times that can be call a friend, that sort of thing. Right. Um, make a pre-commitment pre device. So that's one thing we didn't get into when we got into all of the other strategies. And it's worth thinking about because I, I wouldn't want to leave it with this idea that it's always just on us. You know, we live in an environment that have affordances for us. And that's why sometimes I'm really excited to be part of a group of lawyers or judges when people recognize as a community, we need to address this because then they mm -hmm. help each other, right? Then they recognize. Yeah. I could even say to you after a workshop, what's your frog today? And you get it. And then we'd be able to talk about it. And then you might even then be able to bear your soul and say, yeah, I'll tell you why it's a frog for me. And, and then, right. right, it goes away. And then you're, will, then you're able to get move forward. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so powerful. Wow. Oh, we could continue this discussion. Well, thanks again, Tim. It was just wonderful catching up with you. And as I said, you've offered listeners so much wonderful food for thought. So uh, yeah, really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on the XL Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for great topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com. -E